This is John Quinn. This is Law Disrupted. On August 7th, 2018, Elon Musk sent out a tweet. The tweet said, I'm considering taking Tesla private, $420 funding secured. In the wake of that, the stock market reacted. Price went up. Ultimately, he didn't make an offer to take the company private. There was a securities fraud class action filed. And we're talking with Elodie Thompson and Mike Lifrak, two of my partners, who defended that case and brought home a defense verdict for, for Mr. Musk. Elodie, let me ask you, what was the theory of the plaintiff's case? Well, the theory of the plaintiff's case was that those two words at the end of that first tweet, funding secured, um, were materially false. They were misrepresentations um, that met all the elements for a securities fraud claim. And their idea that they put forward at the summary judgment stage and at trial was that funding secured meant a binding legal commitment. Uh, And anything short of that was a material misrepresentation. And how had they been damaged? What was the theory of damages here? I I assume it's because the market went up, the price went up when he made this announcement, and then it doesn't happen and it's not going to happen and the price went back down. Yeah, they had a very interesting uh, theory of damages because of how volatile the Tesla stock is on a daily basis. So they had to find something that they could try and link uh, up a, a loss to the tweets and the the revelation of the truth, quote unquote. What they did was say, yep, the stock went up on August 7th. And then by August 17th, um, when the New York Times published an article that said funding was far from secure, stock had gone all the way down. And, and guess what, John? The stock went down lower than it was at before Elon sent that initial tweet. That was their damages damages theory, that there was a leakage, they said, that whole period from August 7th to August 17th of information that the market would use to, to learn that uh, the tweets on August 7th were materially false. The securities law claim, I assume, was a 10B5 claim, the, the exchange, yep. Securities Exchange Act of 1934. Uh, That's right. That's a right. Mis- misrepresentation or a false statement in the marketplace causing damage. That's right. Can you, Elodie, can you give us a little bit of the background of the case other than that tweet? I mean, what is there to be said about the origins of this lawsuit, which uh, seemed to get everybody's attention while it was being tried? Yeah, sure, John. So there was that first tweet on August 7th, and then there were a few other tweets surrounding that. Investor support confirmed only reason why this isn't certain is it's contingent on a shareholder vote. Um, And there was a reaction to the the initial tweet in the market, and people started asking a lot of questions. Um, the press started asking questions. The SEC started asking questions. And frankly, you know, for a long time until the trial, that's that's sort of what everyone knew about this case. That Elon had made these tweets. He then posted a, a blog post um, on August thirteenth that can you know sort of indicated what he meant by by funding secured. Um, But in September of 2018, the SEC brought a securities fraud charge against Elon and against Tesla, which was very quickly settled. And And those charges related to the tweet? That's right. That's right. It was very quickly settled within a few days. And um, settled with some type of admission or stipulation, consent or no? No admission. No. But there is the SEC does have um, in their settlement 
consent decrees, uh, a no admit, no deny provision. So unless there was some other litigation, Tesla, Elon couldn't speak out about this case and the underlying facts. So for a long time, the public didn't know what the true facts were here. And I think what came out at the, the trial is that on August 2nd, so five days before the tweet, Elon had made a bid to the board to take Tesla private. So he had written an email to the board of directors of Tesla and said, you know, would like to take Tesla private at $420 per share. And so when you put that email in connection with the tweets, then it starts looking a lot less like securities fraud. So and there was a there was a history that he had actually made a proposal. There was some reality to the the content of the tweet, that is to say, I'm considering taking Tesla private. That's right. That's right. He was. And, you know, I think one of the, the themes that came out at the, the trial was he wasn't just considering this. Right. He had made an offer. So a lot of what this turned on and I think what the SEC's allegations turned on was was funding secured and what that meant. And that's something that we had to deal with within the trial and was a big focus of the factual development at trial, but also prior to that in the court's summary judgment order. Um, and maybe Mike wants to take over that piece. Yeah, so Mike, what were the issues that were faced in summary judgment? What were the hurdles that you had to deal with going into trial? Yeah, going into trial, I, I would point to two main hurdles. Uh, one is a summary judgment order that went against us. And the second was the, the jury pool and kind of the the way that Elon was perceived in San Francisco at the time of the trial. So let's talk about the summary judgment first. We were hired to take over the case about a year ago. So early 2022, after discovery had already been completed, after all the expert reports had already been done, there were 30 plus depositions in the case. And shortly after we came in, came into the case, the court granted partial summary judgment specifically on as to falsity and scienter. So on the funding secure tweet, the court found expressly that no reasonable juror could find that the statement funding secured was accurate. And so same thing on another tweet. There was another tweet that he that he issued around the same time that said, the only reason why this isn't certain is that it's contingent on a shareholder vote. The, the court found that as a matter of law was false. And even beyond that, the court found that the plaintiff had established Sienter on both of those claims. So not just falsity, but also Sienter. And and this doesn't know, happen very often. No, no. You're, it, you're defending a fraud claim. And in advance of trial, in a summary judgment motion, the judge basically gives judgment for the plaintiff on two elements of the claim. Yeah. And it was, as far as we could tell, the first time in a securities fraud class action that a court had done that, it had it had decided issues of falsity and scienter since the SEC Act was was passed in 1934. So, and those are that those are the two elements of a claim where the real battle is in a securities fraud trial, right? It's falsity and scienter. The rest of it is it is reliance, but that's market reliance. Reliance, it, causation, damages, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, but that's like expert stuff. Well, you at know? least at least it simplified the trial for you, maybe. Well, but but we kind of fought that back a little bit. And so the first thing we did is we moved to reconsider the summary judgment motion. And and one of the, the bases for that was that the court had found and denied summary judgment on reliance, on the reliance element of the claim, finding that there were factual issues about materiality. And so what we pointed out was, well, 
materiality is part of falsity too, because only materially false facts are actionable under the securities law. So we said, well, because the court found there are tribal issues as to materiality with reliance, it's the same thing with falsity. So we had a very narrow window that we created after the summary judgment motion where we could argue materiality. And I, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little more, but the judge decided on that motion for reconsideration that materiality was a live issue, that the jury would have to determine, even though he had found factual falsity, that that there wasn't a fa enough of a factual basis for Elon to have said what he did, that the jury still is going to have to decide the issue of whether it was a materially false statement and whether Sienter, whether it was either reckless or or knowing Sienter. So, hmm. but the so you still line, you still had some things there. You had some daylight there on those elements right. that to argue about or to to try to the jury. Exactly, but but the bottom line is we're going into a securities fraud trial with a finding of falsity, and we have to kind of take a position that's basically well, it was false, sure, but it wasn't that false, and <laughs> that, that that's a hard starting point in a securities fraud trial. But that's that's where we started. And and add to the fact that there have been something like 25 of these cases that have ever gone to trial, securities fraud, class action trials. And there hasn't been a defense victory in those trials in at least 15 years. So when you add up that fact, just the rarity of these going to trial, plus so how far behind we started with the summary judgment order, you know, that was a huge hurdle to, to try to overcome. And did you, how does this play out at the trial? I assume you get a jury impaneled, and I know you want to talk about the veneer yeah. and the perception of Mr. Mosk, but just out of curiosity, you've selected a jury, judge typically pre-instructs the jury, I assume that happened here. And so right at the beginning of the trial, did the judge instruct the jury as to these elements, these things he had previously yeah. determined? Elodie was in charge of that, and I know she she can talk about it. Okay. So the the instructions before the jury started hearing the evidence did instruct the jury to assume that the statements were untrue. That's that was the phrasing that the court used. The court did not instruct us to reckless before before the jury heard evidence. So we came in opening statements. The jury is instructed the statements are untrue, and the plaintiff's attorney gets up there and and calls you know Elon a liar multiple times lied right. liar um right. and not not the best way to begin a trial right but it, and it but it could have been worse the plaintiff's lawyers wanted the instruction to be not that you have to assume it but the judge in the northern district of california has found as a, a matter of law that elon musk made a false statement that would have been worse and right. in fact when when we get the opening statement slides from the other side the first document the first slide was the court a, a copy of the court summary judgment order and that was going to be kind of the centerpiece of the opening statement the court didn't allow that and the court gave us an instruction which we asked for which was just the jury has to assume falsity and in fact it, as we went through trial instead of running away from that we sort of embraced it it was more of yeah uh it, it was but this is why it's not fraud right well i think we've gotten a little ahead of ourselves i know we want to talk a little bit about the jury attitudes in the community and the veneer towards Mr. Mosk. Uh, Mike, you said that that was a you regarded that as a real hurdle that you had to overcome. Right, because the atmosphere in San Francisco at the time was 
in the wake of Elon's acquisition of Twitter, there had been layoffs of thousands of Twitter employees and, and contractors in San Francisco. There were negative articles in San Francisco about him almost on a daily basis in the lead up to trial about stuff other than the trial. And then he was act very active on Twitter and he was saying things that people had strong opinions about. So one thing that happened in advance of the trial is that we were able to send a, a jury questionnaire out to the 200 people who were potential jurors in the case. And we got the results of that back a week before trial. So we were able to have the time to, to digest it and to kind of figure out the best way to get a jury that would be fair and impartial. But yeah, that's unusual. You don't usually get those questions. If you get questionnaires, you don't usually get the answers back a week before the start of trial. Right. So it was a huge advantage to us. But when we got them, you know, it was bad. It, mm. Out of 142 potential jurors who held an opinion about Elon, 82% of them had a negative opinion. And they were able to write down kind of the words that came to mind when they thought of Elon. And I, I'll read some of them. Uh, a charlatan, a jerk, a lunatic, a liar, thirsty troll, manipulator, crazy, unhinged, deplorable. There are some things that they wrote at, that I, I don't even think I can say on a, on a podcast. Um, uh, yeah, this is a family-oriented podcast, Mike. Okay. Um, and so that's kind of what we went into it with was this summary judgment order and a jury pool that was in some ways very negative about Elon. And when, when we went into the jury selection, the judge allowed us to put the people who had very negative opinions about him, like very vocal negative opinions, like some of the ones I read, to the kind of to the back of the line and, and not have that they, they weren't allowed to and be, being involved in uh, the oral voir dire so they couldn't kind of infect the other jurors. So they, they so, were questioned separately? Yeah, they were questioned yeah. separately and kind of put at the end of the line. And, and right. at the end of the day, we got a jury that I think was fair and impartial and super hardworking. And there were nine people who sat through the four weeks of trial and paid a lot of attention to what was going on. I, I mean, I know that it, it, there was a point before trial where a motion was made to, to change the venue, which is pretty rare in a civil case yeah i mean it is it is rare in a civil case and and certainly the standard is quite high um i think the the reason you know the motion had to be made was for exactly what what mike was saying that there are such negatively held opinions about elon in the district um specifically related to the twitter acquisition which had just only happened a couple months earlier and the volume of press coverage of Elon and negative press coverage of Elon in San Francisco um, is it, huge. It's, I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of articles all taking a very negative tone toward Elon in ways that were very personal toward Elon as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, right, where they have companies, but not every action of the company is attributed specifically to the, the CEO or the founder, um, something like that. In the case of Elon, it could be a very similar action that that Elon took us to Twitter and Zuckerberg took us to, to Meta, right? But it would be Meta did this and it would say Elon did that. So they were quite parallel. Um, so it, it was something that that obviously was very high standard. The court did not grant it. 
But we do think it was helpful in raising this to the court's attention. And then, of course, our points that we made in the motion were quite confirmed by the the questionnaires from the jurors. All right. So you jury's been instructed. You know, you're you're sounds like you were kind of comfortable with the jury that had been seated at the beginning, at least relatively speaking, given the veneer and the the answers to the questionnaires that you had gotten. So, I mean, going into trial, what seemed to really matter? I mean, what as the trial developed, what were the things that happened that you think really led to the to the win here? Well, I I think a, a lot of it came down to materiality. And the evidence on materiality and the jury instruction on materiality. The the kind of funny thing was because the court had done this interesting uh, legal maneuver where it decided technical or factual inaccuracy, but not falsity, the legal element, which is material falsity. Um, The court had to explain to the jury what materiality was. And it wasn't just a typical sort of model instruction, you know, material false statement, materially false misrepresentation. Really, the instruction materiality had to explain how something could be untrue, but not material. And so that instruction we ended up getting um, basically laid out what materiality is in the context of uh, securities fraud. And it's not just that it's on a matter of importance, something that's important to investors, but it really has to be something that is different in a material way from the actual state of affairs. So you have to look at the delta between uh, what the actual state of affairs is and what the state of affairs that was represented that's alleged to be materially false was. Um, so we took that and and we ran with it and we put forward a lot of evidence, not only from from Elon, but from, you know, the board of directors, from uh, Elon's right hand man, from the CFO of Tesla, as to what the true state of affairs was so that the jury could see that it wasn't different from you know what Elon had tweeted, at least not in a material way. So what is the difference then between. What he said, the tweet, the inaccuracy, or uh, the thing that wasn't the case. I'm trying to avoid saying falsehood. Uh, and the real state of affairs. What was that difference? How did how was how was that ultimately described to the jury? So it's really something that we focused on factually throughout the trial. And the, and the first step really in that is to define what funding security actually means, right? Because that's you have to define that before you define how that's different, if at all, from the actual state of affairs at the time. So what what does funding secured mean? There is not an accepted definition legally or in the financial world of what that means. And and the less concrete or absolute it is, the easier it is to close that gap that- Well, I I, I would think, you know, just, I would think it means that actually we've signed up uh, investors or lenders uh, who are going to provide the credit, the liquidity to take Tesla private. Right. That, and they're, and, they're, and they've, they're committed to this. And I'm glad you didn't testify at trial. <laughs> I, know, because, I was going to ask John what, what signed up means. What does he mean by signed up? Does he mean a legal signature and a document? Or does he mean raised your hand and said, I want to give you money? Yeah, you don't want me on this jury probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because so, so, uh, because I'm thinking what I know in the world I live in, if, you know, somebody tells an audience of, uh, you know, the investment community that funding is secured, 
you know, that has a certain meaning in the investment world. I mean, it's some they've actually secured the funding. There's been a legal commitment. And these types of legal commitments, the legal commitment to be involved in taking Tesla private, are not just made verbally. They're signed up. Right. And people had very different views of what that meant that was thankfully different than, than your view, John. For example, the name plaintiff testified that his view of what that meant was that a funding source had expressed support. So that's a good answer for you. Right. Another <laughs> member of the class said it meant that there had been some vetting of uh, financial uh, fu funding sources. It, even a, even a, the investment banker said that it meant to him that that Tesla was in touch with potential capital. So all, all right. of those are, are much less concrete than a signed, sealed document. And we use that to, to, again, bridge the gap between what was the actual state of affairs and whatever funding secured meant. And so the second part of that is what was the actual state of affairs? And so we really uh, emphasized and brought in a lot of witnesses about what funding discussions that Elon had had. And there had been years of background on this where a, a, a sovereign wealth fund had expressed interest in taking Tesla private for two plus years. There had been five meetings where Elon and, and this fund had, had discussed it. They had expressed interest. And then on July 31st, uh, 2018, you know, a week before this tweet, there was a big meeting at the Tesla factory in Fremont where Elon, the, the CFO, uh, met with this sovereign wealth fund again. And the three people on the Tesla side came out of that meeting believing there was a handshake deal to fund a go private transaction. And it, there was contemporaneous evidence of that. Elon and the others acted in accordance with that at the time. And, and as Elodie said before, Elon then made an actual offer to the board on August 2nd to take Tesla private based on that meeting. And so was funding secured? Given the definitions that we just talked about, I, you, you, you know, I, I think ultimately that's how we closed the gap. We, we had a very strong showing about what the actual state of affairs was. And we had a very strong showing and kind of uh, very good evidence about what people viewed funding secured to mean to even start with. I mean, you're asking the jury to make some pretty fine distinctions, aren't you? Yeah, and, and uh -huh. th these were very complicated. Even that is complicated, but th then it get even more complicated when you're talking about loss causation and we're talking about options trading. Uh, but yeah, it's slicing it in a very, very thin way. And, and, and it's a very narrow piece of daylight that we had to 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 try to win the case. But that's really what we, we tried to focus on. Just out of curiosity, were you able to talk to the jurors after the trial? Um, yes, the, the court allowed questioning of the jurors. Three jurors came forward and, and were asked questions by the plaintiffs. Mm -hmm. And based on that, sometimes you, when you talk to jurors after a trial, you wish you hadn't asked. <laughs> if you won, you're happy you won. And, uh, but how they got there uh, is sometimes... Uh, hard to follow. Uh, based on your conversations with the jurors, did you feel like they got it? They were able to make these distinctions that your message came home to them? Absolutely. I, I think, as Mike mentioned earlier, we had an extremely attentive jury. They were going through notebooks. Even one of them said, you know, some of us went through multiple notebooks taking notes. They were all paying attention very carefully, which we we really needed because of that sort of narrow window through which we were trying to, you know, defend this case. 
Um, and I, jurors understood the the materiality point. I think you know they 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 thought that funding secured was ultimately not that important because so much evidence came in that the money was there, right? The money was was there. If it wasn't through the sovereign wealth fund, Elon had you know SpaceX, you know um, his investment there. There was a, a lot of resources that Elon could tap into. To, to take Tesla private. And so ultimately funding secured, even though it was what the whole case was focused on really, it, it wasn't that important to the jurors because mm-hmm. exactly what, what Mike said, I think they, they did get it. And frankly, they also were extremely attentive to two things like reliance and loss causation, um, which was something that they had honestly if they hadn't been paying close attention i don't think they could have gotten that either because it's so complex so certainly we benefited from having a jury that was really committed to doing its job and they came back quickly you know we finished closing and the in the closing uh uh, jury instructions at 12 30 on a friday afternoon they they within two hours had had a verdict right so we've been talking about materiality and closing the gap between the real situation and the statement that wasn't accurate. Uh, what other key factors in the trial do you think led to the victory? Uh, another one, I think, was Elon's state of mind uh, and his good faith, essentially. And, and that was another thing that even though the court had decided to enter in some way, the jury still had to decide whether it, if he was liable, whether it was reckless or whether he had knowing he knowingly made what, what was false statement. So we put on, I think, a lot of evidence about his good faith and the fact that he had no motive to do this. He didn't gain anything uh, through this and that this whole thing you know, was real. Uh, I think a lot of people's perceptions uh, without knowing too many of the facts going in was essentially that this was a joke or that this was him uh, saying something on Twitter that had really nothing behind it. But this was a real situation where he believed and others believed they had the funding to do this, where he he made an actual offer to the board a few days earlier and that he he issued the tweet when he did because it, this information was going to leak out and he wanted to make sure that it was going to that the the information that was out there was going to be accurate because the Financial Times was about to uh, publish an article about the interest of the sovereign wealth fund and and he wanted to get ahead of it. So all of that points to his good faith, not him having a motive or a, the intent to defraud anyone. And, and I think that's something that came through uh, in some ways in his testimony. He didn't come across as someone who was intending to defraud the market or who had ill motives. And I think, you know, motivation or or uh, a motive to defraud isn't an element of the claim, uh, but I think it's something that the jury wanted to know and wanted an answer. Why would he be doing this? And the, the plaintiff never really provided him. But I mean, you said that the judge had taken Scienter off the table. Right. But you're telling me, Good faith, <laughs> the good faith was important to the win. At the same time, the jury's being told, uh, you know, he knowingly made a false statement. Again, this sounds like you're walking a pretty fine line. Yeah. So it's interesting, John, because, you know, two reasons that was on the table. 
One is that the Supreme Court has not decided definitively if recklessness is enough for Sienter um, for, for 10b-5 claims. So there was a need for, from the court's perspective, um, for a finding on unknowing so that that could sort of clear away any any risk that reckless wasn't enough for a center. Um, but then the the plaintiffs, you know, the, the plaintiff's lawyers decided to include all the way up through trial, all of the outside um, directors on the board of directors. Um, and there is a specific good faith defense for the board of directors because that's secondary liability, not primary liability. Um, so their good faith was relevant, but then also because the directors were in there, the the jury had to determine if they found everything else, right? They had to um, determine who bore what percentage of responsibility. So they would have to apportion damages and uh, damage apportionment would only be done for uh, knowing violation. So knowing was in there for that reason as well. Yeah, so that gave you a lot of opportunity to, in effect, talk about people's mental states and their good faith and the like. Exactly. How was Elon Musk as a witness? And how do you think his testimony contributed to the win? Yeah, I mean, first, Elon was on the stand over three days. Um, I think whatever estimate we had gotten from plaintiff's attorneys for how long they anticipated crossing him, it it was far exceeded. Um, Elon was the first witness from the defense side to go up, but he was called by the plaintiff. So right after the the two uh, class members testified, Elon testified, and he came across as a genuine, credible guy. Um, He really was able to articulate what his plan was, why he was considering taking Tesla private and why at the end of the day, he did not take Tesla private. Cause remember here, there was an offer to take Tesla private of $420. And then, you know, two weeks later, two and a half weeks later, it's announced that Elon will not be taking Tesla private. And so Elon was able to walk through all of that, but he also came off as, as a real guy. And that's something that's important to do for someone who's one of the richest people in the world, right? I remember, you know, one thing in particular that stood out to me is the plaintiff's attorney really wanted Elon to, you know, acknowledge that he had caused these class members losses. You have to, you know, don't do you admit you did that? You know, do you apologize to them for that? And what Elon said was, well, certainly if they made investments in Tesla and they lost money, I apologize for that. And I thought that was just a really brilliant way to answer that question because yeah, of course, Elon doesn't want someone to invest in his company and lose money. On the other hand, it's it's not some big securities fraud the reason, you know, that they that they lost money. They they made their investment decisions. I think that sort of came out also in the, in the trial based on on other factors, not necessarily even on these tweets, but at the end of the day, that the tweets were were Elon's genuine attempt to communicate to everyone who should be in the know, all shareholders, instead of some specific set of shareholders that he was considering taking Tesla private. I mean, he's a tough, I mean, for a plaintiff, I think he's a tough witness. We know that now. We tried a previous case where we represented him a defamation case where he had been sued by a, a British uh, cave diver 
as a result of those events in Thailand when some boys had gotten lost in a cave system. And Mr. Musk had assigned some engineers to create this submarine, some engineers from SpaceX to create this submarine to that could be used to get these kids out. And he sent it over there. And this uh, British cave diver gave an interview where he said, this is just a publicity stunt. You know, Mr. Musk should take that submarine, shove it where the sun doesn't shine. And Mr. Musk uh, tweeted a response to that, where among other things, he referred to this uh, cave diver as a uh, pedo guy. So the, the diver sued him for defamation in Los Angeles. And as in your case, the plaintiff couldn't help themselves but call him as an adverse witness. And like the first question to him was, as I recall, Mike, you were there. Something well, to the as, as was Elodie, yeah. Oh, Elodie as well. Something to the effect that, you know, it's a defamation case. So you're Elon Musk. People care what you say. What you say matters. And I think everybody that was like, beat, what's he going to say? <laughs> and yeah, I just had this brilliant answer. That it was, well, you know, I'm, 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 I'm really not sure. I've been talking about our, the world needs to wean itself from fossil fuels and cars and electrification and transportation, et cetera. I've been talking about it. the world doesn't seem to be reacting soon enough. So, so no, no, I'm not sure the world <laughs> listens to me at all. Yeah, and that was exactly what happened. It was literally the first question of the examination, and he obviously not something we had prepared him on, and he just came up with the best answer and it's exactly what you said the best answer you can imagine and 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 by the way the mini sub that he that was built we had it brought to the los angeles office for the trial and it may or may not still be there (laughs) well anyway on the uh, so on the stand he he was a good witness he he uh i mean the challenge i i am sure for someone like him is uh to maintain the demeanor in a courtroom, in front of strangers, and obviously he was attacked. And he, you know, witness can't react to that until you have the sense that that the jury's prepared for you to react and push back. I mean, how, how did that go? I mean, how long was the cross examination, and did it get to a point where he could push back and and did push back successfully? So the examination started, um, you know, the afternoon on the first day. Then it continued the full second the second day, and then into the third day. And I think. Throughout the examination, Elon maintained a pretty calm demeanor. Um, That's not to say that he didn't push back, but I think he was generally calm. What I think was notable about the second day was that, um, and and Elon said this on the stand, was that he he really wasn't feeling well. His back was hurting him, and and that came across a couple of times. And I, I think it indicated to not only the jurors, but frankly, everyone in the room, what a toll this could take on him being being put through this, um, how it was affecting him. And frankly, that just shows how seriously he was taking this. This isn't just like, hey, you know, I'm above the law or I don't care about the, the money if I have to pay. No, no, no. He was taking this very seriously, in part because he is a guy who tries to do right by his shareholders. I think that's one thing that it was said by many people at trial, but I think he's also known for it. He really does try to do right by his shareholders, big and small. So they called Elon as a witness. Uh, were you able to call the uh, class representatives or uh, as witnesses as well? and Or do you use any of the plaintiff's witnesses to your advantage? 
Yeah, and so they actually, the plaintiff side called the name plaintiff and another class member. And so we were able to cross-examine them. And I, I think we effectively turned them into witnesses that were favorable for us. So for example, the name plaintiff, uh, Bill Price did the cross-examination of the name plaintiff, just like he did the cross-examination of the plaintiff in the, the cave diving case. And he was he gave us some very favorable testimony. I, I mean, the, the name plaintiff was not a guy who had bought stock based on Elon's tweets and had sold it, you know, immediately after they found out what was allegedly the truth. He was a very complicated options trader who engaged in, in, in transactions that he tried to explain on the stand, but I don't think anybody really understood what he did or how he invested in the company. And, and in fact, he hadn't really had an actual stock purchase in Tesla. It was all options trading. And so he came across in some ways as, as a gambler, as somebody trying to take advantage of the situation. And in fact, he only joined the class after his Tesla vehicle that he had ordered was late. And they had called up Tesla and was mad that the, his Tesla was late. And, and then he joined the class. And, okay. and he, in fact, bought stock in the company after this. So again, you know, if somebody's representing a class that's allegedly defrauded, he invested in the company after that. And so the second guy who was a class representative also testified similarly, like he admitted there were many reasons why he bought the stock. And both of them, as I mentioned before, gave really helpful definitions of what funding secured meant to them. So in a lot of ways, we were able to, to turn those witnesses who in some ways you know, could have been sympathetic to the plaintiff's side, really turn them around. So you made some reference to experts. What was the subject of the expert testimony and how did that play out? Yes, there were two experts, one one just on options, which is extraordinarily complicated, and then one going to sort of uh, damages, loss causation aspect of it. And as I think we we had mentioned there were were two parts to the first tweet. I'm considering taking Tesla private $420. And then the second part funding secured. I don't think what we have talked about yet is that nobody disputed that that first first part of that tweet was was actually true, was accurate. And the court didn't find that to be factually inaccurate or false or untrue either. And so it's an interesting question when you talk about loss causation as to, okay, well, how do you prove what the market really reacted to here and what investors were really relying on here? And um, yeah, just, just to me, if yeah. the richest man in the world says, I'm considering taking Tesla public at $420, I'm not really caring so much whether funding secured. Oh, look, he could have been on the jury, You know, <laughs> I, I know the market's going to react to that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, exactly. And one of their experts essentially admitted that, that, that the market reaction to just that part of the tweet could have been and likely would have been the same, even if funding secured wasn't in there. Right. And so we got we got that out of their expert. And then also the fact that in sort of assessing what did cause the damages, what caused any losses alleged here, that they the expert tweeted treated everything as an interwoven bundle. And if it's an interwoven bundle and part of that bundle is true, then have you really proved loss causation? 
I, and I think that was a question for the jury. And it was a general verdict form. So, you know. Really? We, so it didn't go through the elements? No, no. It was a general verdict form. It just said as to, you know, tweet one. I assume that the defense wanted a, a, a detailed verdict, not a, a general yeah, verdict. Yeah, interesting. We did, we did initially propose a, a detailed uh, verdict form with going through each of the elements. Um, but... At the end of the day, I think we we didn't object to this general verdict form. On we objected to some parts, sort of unrelated to this, but the idea that the jury just had to look at the two tweets and say, "Hey, was this securities fraud?" You know, at the end of the day, we thought that was a pretty good place for us to be in because this didn't look like securities fraud once you had all the facts in front of you. I mean, with all the with the number of fine distinctions at play here, was the uh, you know settling the jury instructions was that difficult? A lot of arguments over key instructions. We had a lot of briefing and argument over the key instructions. Um, the you know we made sure to sort of preserve everything in case we would need it for appeal, which thankfully we didn't. Um, but the focus was really on the things we've been talking about today: materiality, where I think we got the best materiality instruction any defendant in a securities fraud case could hope for. And I, I have no doubt that any other defendant who goes to trial will be looking for this jury instruction as a model. Um, and then similarly with loss causation, this idea that they had, we into the loss causation jury instruction, we got the idea that plaintiffs had to tease out what they call disaggregate between things that were not related to the allegedly materially false statements and things that were. And it just wasn't, it wasn't really possible for the, for the plaintiffs to do that with the evidence that they put in. Someone could have done it if they had tried to go through and figure out, you know, this moved it this much, this moved it that much, but they never made that effort. Their expert just said it's all an interwoven bundle. Well, any takeaways Reflecting back on the whole experience, the case, trying the case and the result, what are, what are the key takeaways for, for both of you from this trial? Uh, so for me, the first thing that comes to mind is what our firm brings to a case like this, because, I mean, this was an incredibly complicated case. We've kind of touched the surface of it, but, it, you know, there were parts of it that were very complex and it, and it had a lot of different legal, a lot of different factual issues. And what we were able to do is to put together a team from eight different offices around the country, some 23 people. And, and that's one of the advantages of our firm because we, we're not taking just random people from offices. We're taking the person who knows the most about you know securities law, the person who knows the most about options trading, the person who knows the most about corporate governance. People have tried a case in this courthouse and putting together a team like that uh, uh, you know, of the thousand attorney plus attorneys that we have, getting the exact right people for a trial like this is 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 something that I think is unique to our firm. And I know that you talk a lot about that, John, but it really is something that came to fruition in this case. So right. that, that and, I think is the first. And, and and being able to work together as a team. Right. You know, because look, I mean, litigators, trial lawyers, uh, you know, they're not known as shrinking violets people with sizable egos, but being able to work together and execute on a trial, I, I just, is really key and is a great tribute to the, everybody who contributed to this verdict. How about for you, Elodie? What are your key takeaways for you? I mean, I think that one of the key takeaways is 
don't give up, don't give in. I mean, we fought for every advantage that we could possibly get. We clawed back from a bad summary judgment ruling. We advocated really hard for the best jury instructions we could get. And we really made sure that the case that we put on was something that the jurors could latch on to our themes, our narrative, and, you know, find there was no securities fraud here. You know, I think that it really goes to to show the the benefits of the jury system in this instance, where you did put nine people in a jury, it had to be a unanimous verdict, and they all uh, latched on um, to the fact that there was no securities fraud here. Beyond that, I think everybody was betting against us. I think the press was betting against us. I think some people in our in our own firm, you know, if you had asked them, well, they would have said, no way these people can win this case. Um, and we did. So I, I think it just goes to show when you get this team of people together working, all coming at it with different perspectives, um, really can do something tremendous. Yeah, as, as we were going to trial, it, it was more of, you know, good luck at trial, but not in in, in, a, in a positive way. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was like, like we were heading good into, luck, good heading luck, into, heading into a buzzsaw of some sort. And the other thing that I'd add to what Elodie said is it is related to something, John, that I think you taught me probably more than 20 years ago, which was the, the first side that figures out what's important in the case has a real advantage in the litigation. And that's true at the start of a case before anything happens. But I think it's also true when something big happens in a case, like a summary judgment order that's of the magnitude and has the effect that it did in this case, figuring out how to navigate around that and within that and figuring out what's important in that context is, is just as important. And I think that we, we did that in this case really effectively. Well, it was a tremendous win. Congratulations to you both and all the rest of the team. We're all very, very proud of you. Thank you. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Listener.